listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, visit my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and send in your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call 757-774-8482. You can call or text that number, 757-774-8482. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw. Just consider me your guitar scientist, because I don't like the word luthier. With over 20 years of experience building and repairing guitars, this is a podcast about guitar repair, guitar building, guitar news, guitar science, and guitar opinions. With me, as always, is my lovely co-host and wife, Melissa. Every week we take your questions, I read them, and Eric will attempt to answer them. I do my best. Well, uh, we've got some good questions this episode. We've got questions about nickel hardware. We've got questions about uh, conversion scale replacement necks. Do you know what that's about? Do you know Uh, what that means? Yes, I I think so. I don't think you do. Well, I guess we'll find out. You're going to learn about it. Uh, All kinds of good questions. It's October. It's 2017. It's getting cold. There's a a spook in the air. There's a chill in the air. A spook? There's a a nip in the air. Oh, there's a spook in the air. And uh, as is customary on this podcast every year about this time, we do a guitar horror story episode. So, please get in your guitar horror stories, and uh, then round about the end of the month there for Halloween, we're going to do guitar horror stories. So, get in your story of the, whatever it is, the most mangled guitar you've ever seen. Uh, the the guitar that got sat on or stepped on, or the guitar that was damaged in a fire. The worst repair you've ever seen. The worst repair you've ever had to undo. The worst repair you've ever done. Oh. That takes that takes some That takes some guts. To send that one. Anyway, get in your uh guitar horror story. That's always a fun episode. So we're gonna do that at the end of the month. The best way to submit those stories is to go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click the contact link, send in your story, or just submit a question or comment for the show can't do the show without your participation so please send in your comments or questions the other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482 you can call or text that number 757-774-8482 and we have a call now shall we take a call let's do it all righty then hello eric and melissa Enjoy the podcast. Uh, I've had a musical instrument repair and rental business for 30 plus years, so I've seen a lot of production guitars. 
I'm very fond of telling my customers that I would be fired in a week from the quality control at most guitar factory warehouses, not for poor work and setups, but for spending too much time on each instrument trying to coax them into their best level of playability. Here's my ethical question. I know that you did this sort of work for Ibanez for a while. Are typically our employees whose position is to set up a guitar are allowed to decide whether a specific guitar should not be shipped due to poor geometry or problems? Or are they encouraged to go ahead and pass borderline guitars on down the line in the hopes that they'll never have to see them again? Um, again, great podcast. I'll try to participate a little bit. And uh, I'm always learning new things. Uh, I hate to hear you bagging on my man, Don Teeter, but I have to admit that uh, that was what was available 30 years ago to learn guitar repair. And um, we surrender to progress. So thanks very much. Bye-bye. Cool. Thanks for the question. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I don't mean to. I don't mean to disparage Don Teeter. Um, well, it's like it's like the pioneers in medical science too. You, you had to have those guys. Yeah. Well, and if you look at Don Teeter's book, a lot of the information is really good. Right. Yeah. And it's full of pictures. I mean, it's a great book. I don't mean to put Don Teeter down because it was, it, it was most certainly the first book about guitar repair I'd ever had. And in many ways, it was my introduction to a lot of things. Um, Thankfully, I was a bit too sheepish to try some of the crazy stuff he did, like sawing necks off. Stuff that we don't do anymore. But um, no, you know, I don't mean to disparage Don Teeter. And if anybody knows, I should just do an internet search. He can't still be around. Maybe he is. I don't know. It's possible. Anyway, if anybody knows uh, whatever happened to old Don Teeter, let me know. But yeah, that was a great, that was actually a great book. And I don't mean, I hope you didn't uh, take it the wrong way. I really, I really don't mean to bag on Don Don Teeter. His book about guitar repair is is pretty cool. On to your question. Yeah, I did do that sort of work for, uh, for Ibanez. We were setting up guitars to be shipped out from there. There's a there's a warehouse facility uh, distribution point for Ibanez guitars. It's no longer here, um, but there was one in my hometown of Idaho Falls, Idaho. And they shipped out guitars all over the West. California had its own warehouse, but anything else west of the Mississippi, any shop that uh, were buying Ibanez guitars went through our warehouse. They were sent right here from uh from asia or you know wherever some of them are japanese made some of them are korean some of them were chinese um they would get sent right here to the warehouse and then me and a handful of other guys it was our jobs to take the guitars off the shelf and fill the order and then set up each one and make sure it was okay to be shipped and certainly i know what i know what you mean when you say you'd be fired uh, for uh, uh, spending too much time trying to get the guitars right. That was my problem. <laughs> I think that's part of why they moved me into the repair department. Um, I I didn't I wasn't in the quality control department for for terribly long. I don't know, maybe a year. I I, I don't remember. It's been so long now. It's twenty years ago. But um. That's I think that's why they moved me into the repair department because they could see that I was 
more uh meticulous yeah and just more attuned to that sort of work you know so aside from all of the quality control that was going on there they also did uh warranty repairs so anybody on the west of the mississippi except for california that had a warranty issue with their ibanez sent it to our warehouse and uh, we did the work replaced the parts or whatever needed to be done and uh that was my job for a long time and i enjoyed it uh but yeah as far as the quality control thing goes we were certainly encouraged to fill orders as fast as possible um i think that their guideline to us was typically you shouldn't be spending more than about 10 minutes on a guitar well setting up a guitar in 10 minutes is not really you know that's not that's really not a really a full setup <clears throat> We didn't change strings. We left the strings on, that you know, unless one broke. We didn't set the intonation. They they didn't want us to. They just wanted us to eyeball it and make sure it was, you know, close enough that it was going to play. Um, really, all about all we did and about all they encouraged us to do in the quality control department was make sure the neck is straight, make sure everything works, and make sure the action is reasonable. So It, it really wasn't a setup. Borderline guitars would... Borderline guitars. Oh, I hate to even tell you what happened to board... Well, <laughs> they're not they're not there anymore, and it's no longer... Yeah, so I'll just tell you. So there was an old man that worked in the shipping department, and uh, <laughs> he'd worked there for, God, I don't know how long, you know, probably since the 70s. I, I think he he was in Vietnam, and then... When he came home, I think he got a job at this place. And he worked in the shipping department. Well, you know, they try to move people up in the ranks. And so they tried to put him in quality control once. And uh, it did not work out so well. He just did not have the aptitude for it. So back to the shipping department, he went. And what we would do with Borderline Guitars is put his initials on it. <laughs> <laughs> because we were supposed to sign each warranty card. Uh, and so, you know, I would inspect a guitar and set it up and do the quality control. And if it passed muster, then I would put ED on the on the card, my initials, right? If it was a borderline guitar, we would put the old man from the shipping department's initials on it. And that did accomplish two things. That accomplished two things. <laughs> one, one was that if that guitar came back for warranty repair, we knew that that it went out kind of a borderline situation. And the other thing that it accomplished was it it absolved the inspector of any wrongdoing. Right, and it kept the old man in the shipping department down. Kept him down. Well, it was... I suppose, but <laughs> it was absurd because everybody knew he wasn't in the in the quality control department. So, oh, so it he, was a red flag. Yeah, when it was it came a red. Back. Yeah, everybody knew. He, you know, that guy <laughs> did not set this guitar up. I don't. They never really caught on to that. But the point is, uh, you know, 
<laughs> that we didn't have to do that very often, hardly at all. And it was just a kind of a joke that we pulled now and then. The quality of the guitars we were getting and sending out was pretty good, really. Uh, we didn't have much concern for um, Borderland guitars. And uh, if it was, again, there was a repair facility in this place. So uh, any Borderland guitars that, um, you know, really needed help, we would just uh, uh, fill out some paperwork and send it to the repair department and go get another guitar. So it wasn't that big of a deal. It really wasn't. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I remember once we got a shipment of ATK basses. There's the attack bass that they sell. So maybe they still make them. I don't know. I've been as in the 90s. And for whatever reason, I don't know if they'd used a little bit, the wood was a little too green or what, but the, the necks had all shrunk and they all had uh, fret sprout really bad. Hmm. Frets sticking out of the neck really bad. And this was when I had just started. And, uh, you know, there were like... 70 of them you know 80 of them wow all with really bad sharp frets like a like the worst you've ever seen like frets sticking out like really far i mean there was no way we could ship these bases right so let's put the new guy on uh on on fret sprout detail you know so that's what they did they put me on, okay eric you're in charge of uh Filing it down all these frets on the edges here. Dress the frets, dress the fret ends on these bases. And uh, I tell you what, man, it about killed my hand. Yeah, you're probably still suffering the uh, after effects of that. I, You know, guitar repair is tough on your body. There's a lot of repetitive motion. There's a lot of things that just it's hard to do ergonomically. Right. There's a lot of bad chemicals and wood dust and yeah. solder fumes. It's really not, yeah, yeah. It's really not a good occupation to be in if you're concerned about your health. Anyway, moving right along, we've got uh, that. Thanks for the call. Thank you very much for the call. We've got a lot of letters. Shall we uh, read some letters? Let's do it. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. What is the best way to polish very tarnished, almost corroded nickel hardware on a guitar? Pickups, tuners, bridge, stop bar, etc. Thanks, Zach. Hmm. If it's tarnished to the point of corrosion, uh, there's not a whole lot you can do because even if you clean it up, it's just going to be pitted. And, uh, yeah, yeah, the best way, um, you know, you have to be careful too, because nickel, um, plating is, is pretty thin and it will, uh, you know, you can polish through it, but it's not as bad as gold. Gold hardware just rubs off with your hand. It's terrible. But, uh, nickel plating the best way to polish it up is um, just use some. Uh, you know what I? You know what I use most of the time is I went down to the auto parts store and got some metal polish. I think it's for polishing like aluminum wheels and on cars. Uh, it's called Mother's Metal Polish, and I use that on corroded hardware. It does a really good job. 
if if it's to the point of being tarnished and pitted, there's you know you can get it as shiny as possible. It's still gonna it's still gonna have some problems. But that's what I use is a metal polish. You can use um, I have these little wheels, these little polish wheels that attach to a Dremel, and uh, those are nice for for polishing uh, nickel hardware. You know, so you could try that. Uh, I put my uh, my little my little Dremel polish wheels. I put them on a Dremel, on a uh, my Dremel has a big flex shaft, so that you can. It's it's a little more easy to to work with, but that's nice for polishing up you know stop bars and things like that. Two pneumatic bridges. That's those are notoriously hard to polish up and clean. Uh, I like to go at them with a toothbrush first, maybe some. Uh, uh, some solvent and a toothbrush, but uh, yeah, that's what I would try. A little bit of metal polish. Go down to the auto parts store and get some. Uh, the stuff I bought was called Mother's Aluminum Polish or Mother's Metal Polish, something like that. Cool. Thanks, Zach. Hey, Eric and Melissa. Congrats on the new site and podcast rhythm. I have a, s- a suggestion that I hope isn't too forward. Although if it is, it probably means the East Coast is wearing off on me. (laughs) Us guitar nerd zealots have been bugging you about all those tasty wiring schematics that float around in your brain regions, but haven't yet made it into a PDF format. It also occurs to me that I'm a huge fan of your show, but I am not flushed with enough cash to throw down for a pinup. I am, however, comfy enough to shell out a modest amount for an e-book, a classical a classic tactile pamphlet or a crowdfunding effort to make these wiring diagrams and mods a reality to the solder soldiers in your nerd army. I'm sure others feel the same. Thanks for making this show. It is among my favorite things. Kent in Philly. Thanks, Kent. Save up your nickels. Someday maybe you could buy a a custom guitar from me, a pinup custom guitar. In the meantime, I really do want to put together a schematic booklet, and I've know I've I know I've teased about it, and I know I've mentioned it in the past. I really thought that I would have more time when we moved here to Idaho. We relocated to Idaho about four months ago. I can't believe how busy I've been. I've been flooded with repairs and special orders, and uh, then we've taken this podcast to a weekly podcast. I've got a lot more uh a lot more time being uh taken up spending with family that's here in the area, which is great. I'm not complaining. Anyway, my point is I don't have time to put together I really want to. I really want to do it and I will do it eventually. I promise you that. I don't know if it's going to be anytime super soon. Not definitely not this year, but yeah, I'm going to put together even if it's just something for download a uh, a collection of schematics because I do have a bunch of schematics that I've invented that I haven't seen anywhere else. And uh, it would be fun to, you know, it'd be fun to unleash that. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. Thanks, Kent. I appreciate you listening, man. Thanks for submitting a question. Greetings, Eric and Melissa. I recently discovered your podcast through the Fretboard Journal, and I've been binge listening on the road while touring with my band. Hmm. I was curious to get your take on conversion necks. I have smaller hands and I am considering purchasing a Gibson scale neck for my tally. What are your thoughts on conversion necks? Pros and cons? Other than affecting the string tension, is there anything else I should be aware of? 
Also, what are the benefits of going with a quarter sawn neck, if any? Thanks so much, Ben F. Cool. Thanks, Ben. He's touring with his band. I wonder what his band is. I don't know. Uh, send us a link to your band, Ben. We want to know. We we want to know. Um, conversion necks. Yeah, that's something that uh, I don't hear about very often. But yeah, they, they sell, like for example, Warmoth sells replacement necks that you can put on your Fender guitar and get a Gibson scale length. They're special custom necks. You can just replace the neck, and the way the neck is made, you don't have to move the bridge or anything like that, and all of a sudden you've got a shorter scale length. Um, pros and cons, well, as anytime, anytime you swap out a neck on a guitar, um, there's going to be an amount of uh, work to make it um, all happen properly. It's not just a, uh, it's not just a plug and play thing. It'll have to be dialed in and set up. You'll have to have a nut made, tuners installed, all that jazz, of course. It'll have to be finished. These are all things I'm sure you know. Uh, as far as, um, the pros go, if that's the scale length you like, then I can't really think of any downsides apart from just the trouble of putting it on. Uh, Personally, I like the longer scale. With a longer scale, your strings are tighter at the same pitch. With a shorter scale, your strings are floppier or looser at the same pitch. Right. Um, and so he's saying he, he likes the, the feel because he has, uh, what did he say? Did he say he has small hands? Small hands. Well, smaller hands. Sorry about smaller that. Smaller than what? Smaller than... Smaller than big hands. <laughs> Anyhow, I tell you what, if it's, uh, you know, it's just not something that, uh, I, it's personal preference. That's really all it is, man. It's personal preference. I just can't think of any big pros and cons. It's just going to be a slightly different feel. Um, you know, like I said, lower tension and uh, easier to reach, you know, really far spread you know if you're doing crazy chords it might be easier for you to reach some of those crazy chords oh what are you doing with your mic sorry there? uh and he asks what are the benefits of going with a quarter sawn neck if any well it'll be more expensive um it's a different it's just a different cut of maple and the grain is running up and down instead of side to side and uh, the theory is, and it's, I th certainly think that it's true, that a quarter sawn neck uh, has a little more strength to it. Not as much flex. So it won't warp as easily? Right, so it won't warp as easily. And there is some truth to the idea that it will possibly give you better sustain and better tone because it's not absorbing as much string Right. Tension. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Ben F., with your smaller hands. Uh, I always play an open E tuning on my SG guitar. My question about this is, do I have to tune the guitar down at night when I don't play? Also, I was hoping you could recommend a multimeter tool for, or feature 
features that you would look for in a said tool. Also, perhaps you could do some videos showing how to use the tool to test things on a guitar. Many thanks for the podcast and sharing your knowledge. Corey MacArthur. Thanks, Corey. That's a good idea. I'll try to do that. I'll try to do a a multimeter video. There's probably a bunch of them already as they pertain to guitars, but yeah, no, it's not a bad idea. Uh, Features I would look for, you know, they're all, you know, for what you're going to be using it for in a guitar, uh, they're all, you know, pretty similar. I just get an inexpensive one if you're just kind of getting your feet wet. Um, If you want to get fancy, get one that tests capacitance because that's always nice. Uh, Most of them don't. You kind of have to get a nicer uh, multimeter. Uh, And that way you can tell the value of a capacitor if it's not labeled. So that's kind of nice. Um, what else was he, what, what did he say? Uh, oh, should he tune his guitar down at night when he does not play because it's an open E tuning? No, no, I would not worry about that one bit, man. I mean, unless you're using like 14 gauge strings and you, I don't, I doubt that you are. Um, no, your SG is going to be fine. If you're using nine or tens or even 11s, you're probably fine. Yeah. I wouldn't worry about tuning it down at night. Cool. Thanks, Corey. Before we go on, Ben, I'm sorry. I'm not. I don't mean to make fun of your hands. I feel bad now. Ben has perfectly good hands. Ben, I like your hands. I have big hands, and I am self-conscious about them. So I started to feel bad during that last question. All right. Well, read another question, you big-handed. <laughs> Hi, Eric and Melissa. Big hands. <laughs> Thanks to both of you for taking the time to provide such helpful information to those who work on or want to know more about guitars. I have listened to and enjoyed all of the episodes. You two are great together. Why, thank you. I have been playing guitars for years and do most of the work on them myself. A few times I have been on the brink of sending or asking a question, but to your credit, the answers have always come from your from your podcast before I could send the question. We're reading your mind... I believe my question today has not been covered yet. I built a double neck 6 and 12 string guitar for my son. It is an SG style with a Gibson type tailpiece and bridge. It was a kit from his grandfather. I have built kit guitars before and know how some kits can be. So I told my son, we will do our absolute best with this project and you will either have the coolest wall ornament ever or a very cool playable guitar. (laughs) After a lot of modification, it turned out to be a very cool, very well-playing, and good-sounding guitar. It has been together for about two years. The problem is, last week he complained about the 12 strings slipping like crazy and not staying in tune. I thought maybe a string or tuning key may be the issue, but after looking at it, I realized the bushing that holds the tailpiece screw on the low E string side is working its way out of the body of the guitar. It is sticking out about half an inch and is now leaning toward the nut with full tension on the strings. I removed the tailpiece and hardware. I now have an oblong hole where a round hole should be for the bushing. I don't know what the material of the body is made out of, but it's not maple or mahogany. Pictures are included. The bushing was slightly loose when I put the guitar together, so I put carpenter's glue in the hole before inserting the bushing. Obviously, this wasn't enough. How would you approach this repair? 
Do I use an epoxy or are there better materials or methods to reattach the bushing? Are there better bushings you would recommend? Do I need to completely fill the holes and redrill? I grew up around talk radio also. I'll hang up and listen. <laughs> Thanks again for all you do. I wish you and your family nothing but the best. Good luck with your new adventure and Melco. Have a great day. Rob, the occasional bass player and singer dude. Rob Mitchell, Brunswick, Ohio. Right on, Rob. Thank you. Yeah, I wonder what kind of wood that is. Hmm. Um, that's going to be tough to get that to behave. Um, the, there's an, there's an insert that goes in the guitar and then the tailpiece has a, a screw that screws into that. So it's like a neck block, but on the tailpiece side? Uh, no. So there's a, there's a metal insert. Oh, oh, oh. That goes in the guitar. Okay. A receptacle. I see. That bridge posts screw into the okay. tailpiece posts and it just ripped out of the guitar apparently now he's got an oblong shaped hole where that bushing used to go so here's what, the first thing that i would try is um uh get a uh a micrometer get your micrometer out hope you got a micrometer and uh, measure that post and see how see how big it is, and see if you can purchase a stop tailpiece with bigger inserts, and that way you can drill a larger hole, and then put your larger bushings in, and uh, hopefully that will do the trick. If that's not the case, you're gonna have to probably fill that hole. And then uh, redrill and uh, and reinstall it. My concern is that that's. A, I know what you say about how some kids can be. I don't know what kind of wood that is, and uh, it might just be soft wood that's just not going to hold up to the tension of a twelve string. And if that's the case, I'm not really sure what to tell you there. Um, without routing out that whole area and putting in some decent wood, and that's not something you want to do. Uh, that's where I would start. Try to find a larger insert and uh, see if see if you can do it that way. That that would be pretty slick. A nice tight fit on some new bushings. Yeah, that's a tough one, man. That's a tough one. Uh, I've seen that on a lot of cheaper, lower-end, you know, Gibson-ish copies. And uh, I shouldn't say I've seen it a lot, but, you know, you you see sometimes where they're they're tilting a little bit. But it sounds like yours is, and he sent me pictures too, and it is. It's really, really, you know, loose in there. You're not going to get any kind of tuning stability how it is. Yeah, um... Let me know how that goes. Let me know if you can if you can get a bigger insert for that. I'm I'm curious to see how that goes for you. Thanks, Rob. Hello, Eric. I've been repairing guitars in the Denver area for about 10 years. I've worked in a number of shops here and have struck out on my own these past 2 years. 
I've learned a great deal from the other techs I've worked with and met a number of techs and builders in various cities whenever I travel, but I haven't been plugged into or made aware of the wider community that exists out there through various guitar shows, conferences, or even Facebook groups. While it's been a struggle, I'm determined to make this a career, and if I am to do this alone, I would like to seek out opportunities for professional development that only comes from learning from other techs. What would be some community resources you can turn me on to? Any conferences or guitar shows I could keep an eye on? Private Facebook groups I can't find through basic searches? The podcast is great. Been been listening for a couple years now. Thank you for your efforts. Nick at GuitarGutter.com Cool, Nick. Thank you. Um, I would reach out to your local, if there is one. Does this? Does he say where he is? No, Denver. He, he, oh, Denver. I'm sure there's a there's a luthiers group that meets in Denver. Um, check out the guild. I think they're called the Guild of American Luthiers. I don't know if I've got that right or not. As you can, as you probably guessed, I'm not a member. Uh, I think it's just, I'm going to do a search here. Guild of American Luthiers, right? Um, they typically will have, uh, like meetups and, you know, groups and maybe there might even be like a monthly thing in your area. Guild of American Luthiers homepage. It's www.luth.org. L-U-T-H. Uh, there's Facebook pages. I would just you know, start searching around. I, 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 I belong to a few luthiers groups on Facebook and that's always fun. You might, um, you know, you can learn a lot from, uh, podcasts too. There's not only ours, but there's, uh, the fretboard journal has a wonderful podcast and, and they, they interview a lot of luthiers. They also interview a lot of musicians and, and uh, other things, too, but uh, they do a lot of luthier interviews. There's also some great... I know that there's some great uh, uh, guitar building podcasts, and uh, a couple of our listeners just started one. Yeah, it's called In the Making. Oh, yeah? I think. Uh, yeah, the guy's from... Uh, Flor- sh- Florian from uh, Millimetric. And then... I don't remember his name, Ian but from Shore Guitars. From yeah, Shore Guitars. They just started a podcast. It's called In the Making. I haven't listened to it yet. Sorry, guys. I hope it's good. I know it's good. It's probably oh, yeah. good. You know it's good. So there's there's a lot of things like that to look out for. Um you might check into I mean, you're in a major metro area, Denver. You might check around the uh uh the local colleges and see if anybody offers a, uh, a course in guitar making. Um, if there's a woodcraft in your area, when I lived in Seattle, woodcraft is a store where they sell, you know, woodworking stuff. They would have a couple times a year, they'd have a guitar making class. And, uh, I never did it, but that sounds fun. You know, you could do that. So there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, especially being in a major metro area there, uh, I'm sure if you just look around just a little bit, you're going to find so much so much support and uh, so much stuff to do that you won't have time to do it all. Yeah. Right on. Thanks, Nick. 
Greetings, Eric and Melissa from Connecticut. I'm a new listener to your show, and I'm really enjoying the podcast. I found the recent interview with Chelsea Clark to be very interesting. Keep up the good work. On to the question. I am planning on leveling a new Warmoth 10 to 16-inch compound radius strat neck and was wondering if you had any tips. Is fall away necessary? I've done a bunch of straight radius necks before, but nothing conical yet. Thanks, Dan. Do you know what he's talking about with a compound radius? I do, but I don't know wow, what fall away is. Yeah. It's the radius of the neck changes from the nut to the... Wow, you're smart. I just am married to a guitar Oh, repairman. yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, compound radius is kind of a cool thing because um, the more round radius is really nice for cording. Uh-huh. And so that's down, you know, by the nut. And then the flatter radius is kind of nice for soloing, you know, and doing bends. And that's up in the upper register. So, um, yeah, I don't really think much fall away is necessary if you're going as flat as a 16-inch radius. What's fall away? Oh, fall away is um, at the very end of the neck, uh, you get just a little bit of... um, Fall away? Fall away. I don't know how to describe it other than there's just an arc, you know, instead of a perfectly, perfectly straight neck from from tip to tip, uh, you have just a little bit of fall away. It's really pronounced on acoustic guitars. Acoustic guitars have generally more fall away uh, than an electric guitar. Electric guitars don't generally have much fall away, you know, and especially with a flat radius like that, I just don't think you're going to need fall away at all i i would just go i would try to get that neck as flat and straight as possible uh what's the purpose of a fall away it just makes it play cleaner up on in the higher register oh yeah well thanks dan the frets are much closer together up in the higher register and so it it really makes any little discrepancy a lot more pronounced oh you know a bigger problem Okay. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Hi, podcast fans. Jay Boone from Emerald City Guitars here. We've been down here in Pioneer Square in downtown Seattle for 20 years, and a lot of things have changed. One thing hasn't changed, though. We still have a great selection of used and vintage guitars and amps. Now, that's not all we do now here. We also have a great service department, a great staff that's very knowledgeable, and tons of accessories and effects and just about everything you'd need if you're a guitar player. So we're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year, and we're doing all kinds of wonderful things, including giving folks great service, great deals, and shipping around the world. Visit our website at emeraldcityguitars.com, and you can see our entire selection of guitars and apps that we have on our floor at any time. We want to thank you guys for all the great years that you've shopped at our store, and that goes for all the folks not only in the Northwest, but around the country and around the world. Emerald City Guitars, your best source for vintage guitars and apps. Hey, this is Darren Jones from Jones and Fisher. Hello, this is Scott Marshall Watson calling. Just wanted to let everyone know how much I love my pinup guitar. Eric Dawes, pinup custom guitars. Can't say enough good things about them. Pinupcustomguitars.com. It's the closest thing that I've personally found to being anything like a, a real vintage 50s Telecaster style guitar. My name is Jay Boone. I am an owner of two pinup guitars. Eric makes guitars that remind me of the real vintage style guitars, and that's what appeals to me. PinupCustomGuitars.com. 
It makes me personally a better player. A very vintage-sounding instrument, very light and resonant. And I use it all the time. I play with it regularly. Uh, I love the feel of the neck. It's a fat 50-style neck. This is Joshua Joel here. This guitar makes all other guitars that I've owned personally feel like toys in comparison. I love the guitar. It's my uh, my main rig when I'm out on the road. I, I ended up buying two of them, and I, I use them both on a regular basis. I'll tell you what, if I had the money, I'd own 10 of them. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate the eagle eye for quality and, and uh, attention to detail. I'm a big fan. Way to go, Eric. Great job, Eric. I really appreciate it. Check one out for yourself. PinUpCustomGuitars.com. That's PinUpCustomGuitars.com. Hey everyone, it's Melissa. As many of you may know, I make tooled leather guitar straps. Each strap is cut, carved, stamped, dyed, and finished by hand. My straps are made to last a lifetime. Visit melcoleather.com to check out my designs or contact me with your custom order. Contact me through my Etsy site or melcoleather at gmail.com. Podcast listeners will receive 15% off their order on Etsy when they use code FRETFILES at checkout. melcoleather.com. M-E-L. CO-leather.com. Hi, Eric. This could be for the co- podcast, too, though I just discovered it and I'm working my way up from episode one, currently on episode 11, so it may take me a while to get to the episode, if you address this there. Loving it so far. My question is about Gibson-style saddles. Each saddle has a flat side perpendicular to the fretboard, and the other face is angled. My inclination would be that the perpendicular face should be oriented toward the nut end and the angle face should taper toward the bridge for proper intonation. I'm confused about the proper orientation of these saddles. Gibson's own product images show variations of these saddle configurations. Sometimes the image shows two saddles facing one direction, usually low E and A, and the remaining four facing the other, or three and three, or all six oriented one direction, and I have seen examples of all six facing either direction. Surely this is not some gross recurring oversight by the manufacturer. Is there, an, is there a de facto proper orientation for these, or are there variations to achieve taste and tone differences? I hope my question is clear. Thanks for your time, Owen S. Perfectly clear, Owen. Absolutely perfectly clear. It is funny. You see those oriented all different kinds of ways. So really, there's a few different ways to look at this question. What was the original intent of Gibson? We may never know. Um, Because you see them all different kinds of ways. My guess is that Gibson's original intent, and this is just a guess, I really don't know for certain, but just looking at the design, uh, I would be inclined to think like like yourself, that the flat side faces the pickups and the angled side faces the tailpiece. However, sometimes the guitar does not quite intonate properly and you need to flip the saddle around to give you just a little bit more room to move the saddle where you need it to be. In other words, um, if I've got like if if I've got the low E uh, tight up against the back of the bridge and it still needs to go farther in order to be intonated properly, I can take it out, flip it around so that the flat side faces the tailpiece, and then that gives you just, you know, the width of the saddle piece 
it just gives you that much more room to be able to play with to get the intonation proper. It's really a funny thing. I've It's certainly something I've noticed and uh, thought about a lot over the years. It, uh, sometimes you just can't intonate a Gibson product without flipping the saddles around. And so that's why you end up seeing them all over the place. Later, uh, in probably, I think it was, wasn't was the 70s until they introduced the wider style of tunematic called the Nashville Bridge. Uh, I don't know when they introduced that, actually. I think it was the 70s. Anyway, um, that enabled you to get a much wider range of saddle movement so that you could set the intonation properly. And on Nashville bridges, you almost always see them so that the flat side is towards the pickups and the angled side is toward the bridge or toward the tailpiece. And so my guess is that's how it was supposed to be with the ABR1, with the original design, the tunematic, but because it couldn't be intonated properly all the time, you had to flip saddles around, and that's why you see them all over the place. Huh. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right on, Owen. Thank you. Hey, Eric, I'm a recent convert to the podcast, and I am digging it wholeheartedly. Sorry if you have talked about this elsewhere, but on a recent podcast, you were talking about a maxed-out vintage-style Fender truss rod, and you made passing mention of horrible, modern, headstock-adjusting <laughs> two-way truss rods. Am I really that? Yeah. Yeah, okay, sorry. You are opinionated. Jeez. <laughs> Are you against two-way adjustable truss rods in general or only certain ones or only in certain situations? Thanks and keep the good stuff coming. Jay. Thanks, Jay. Um, no, I like two-way truss rods. I really do. Uh, they're delicious. No, I uh, I like them. I, I like two-way truss rods. The thing I don't like about the modern Fender dual action truss rod is I'm not crazy about the design. It's kind of a goofy design where if you tighten it, then it, then it compresses the neck. And if you back it off, then it just, it's pushing against that walnut plug. It's just a weird design that I, I don't really like the design, but what's more is that it kind of takes a special little Allen wrench to go in there, like a kind of a long Allen wrench. And uh, a lot of people strip those out because they, maybe they use a, a slightly, you know, slightly the wrong size Allen, or maybe they use an Allen wrench that's kind of rounded off, and then they strip that nut. And then you're really in trouble because you can't get to the adjustment nut because it's behind a walnut plug. And so the only way to fix it is to, uh, like, stick an old soldering iron inside the access hole and heat up the walnut plug so you can take it out. And that way you can access the... Tr it's really a pain in the neck, man. No pun intended. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. <laughs> anyway, with the old-style fender truss rod... The thing works. The well, dang thing works. That's useful. And first of all, I like the look better. So having that having that 
truss rod access at the headstock. I don't like the look of that. I know that's a nitpicky thing. Um, they're fraught with problems because people tend to strip them out, which really sucks. You can't get to it if it's broken. So anyway, the old school truss rod, the old way it's done, where it's just a Phillips, giant Phillips thing at the butt end, I like that because you have to take the neck off to adjust it, which really keeps peop, you know, people away from it. <laughs> it's almost like a childproof cap on a medicine bottle. <laughs> Your average dude who kind of messes around with tools but doesn't really know what he's doing is going to look at that and go, I'm not going to take that. What a pain in the... I'm going to take this to a tech. Pain in the what? Neck, you know. I was going to say something else, but this is a clean family show. Anyway, and then uh, they don't get stripped out like the uh, like the Allen wrench adjustment two-way truss rod modern horrible headstock. Whatever you, whatever you said in your question there, Jay. So, yeah, I do like the old school Fender truss rods. Um, when it comes to other guitars... I'm all for having a, a two-way truss rod in, a, in an acoustic guitar or a, a, a Rickenbacker or whatever, whatever it is. In fact, if the if the old-fashioned, old-school Fender truss rod were two-way, I'd be cool with that, just as long as it's still adjusted at the at the heel. Yeah, that's my opinion. Hi, Eric and Mel. I have a question about acoustic guitars. The acoustic tops seem to be arched after a period of time. Is this normal? I personally personally don't care much as long as the bridge is stable and playability is not affected. Should I do something on my 8-year-old Martin whose top is very slightly arched? My place is not very dry, yet I keep my guitar with a humidifier in the case for a few days every month or so. Thanks, Aaron from Turkey. Thanks, Aaron. You want just a slight belly on a on a flat top guitar. You know, the term flat top is kind of relative. Um, you, you actually want just a tiny little bit of belly on those. So that's totally normal. In fact, it's, it's advantageous because it helps, the, it helps the top flex and pump, you know, when you strum it and it moves the air and makes a big sound. So you want that. Um, when you run into a problem is when it has too much of a belly or bracing problems or the bridge is coming off or something like that. But no, just a slight belly in the top is not only okay, but preferred. Cool. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Aaron. Hey, Eric and Melissa. Great last couple of episodes. I am currently listening to episode 38, thoroughly enjoying Eric's rant about Fender offset guitars. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started. Now, could you please talk about the Fender jazz bass? <laughs> Here we go. I know I have my opinion on them, but what is yours, especially considering working on them compared to a precision bass? I find, for example, that more often than not, the truss rods have to be tightened up so much that it isn't funny. And I have had many on my bench where the difference in volume between the outer and innermost strings was very audible. Thanks and all the best. Oh, his name is Nikolai, Nikolai from, Shore, from Guitars. Shore Guitars. Absolutely. He sent us an email. Yeah. Uh, and that's S-C-H-O-R-R guitars dot D-E. Mm -hmm. He makes cool guitars. Man. Yeah, they're really cool. And he's the one that started uh, the podcast with Florian 
at uh, millimetric. Yep. No, I hear you, and and I absolutely agree, man. The jazz bass can be the bear. I I don't uh, I don't. It's like the offset guitars. I kind of love to hate, you know. <laughs> I have this like it's like a rash uh, that you that you like to scratch, you know. The Gross. offset guitars. Hey, what? <laughs> uh, jazz basses. Yeah, I don't see them very often, so I don't really, you know, it doesn't it doesn't chap my hide as much as the offset guitar quirks do. But yeah. Tiny little skinny neck. Here's the other thing about jazz basses that suck. What's up with the nut being inside the binding? It's just the craziest design you've ever seen. I don't know how many jazz basses I've seen where that outer corner of the nut, either on the high or the low string, uh, is chipped away. Now it needs a new nut. Just a poor design. Poor design. So when you make a new nut, it's like you're... It has to fit inside, inside the, the binding. Oh, that's ridiculous. I, it's totally ridiculous. Yeah. That, you know, when, when they have binding, the jazz bass, tiny little skinny neck that's, like you said, you have to crank the truss rod to make it work. No, it's, yeah, it's not my favorite bass for sure. I'm a P bass guy. Actually, I'm a Tele bass guy, but the original P bass was a Tele bass, you know. I like those. I need to make one of those. I need to make it. That would be awesome. I love those. They're so cool. Thanks, Nikolai. One more question. When switching from round wound to flat wound strings, what, if any, setup changes should be addressed? Also, I suggest that you interview a guitar case maker for a future episode. Hmm. Thanks, and remember, be careful out there. Now, What does that mean? Is that a threat? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I know what you mean. Is his name Crash, or is yeah, this that's a Crash. secret note to me? No, this is Crash. Crash, he, he, okay. He submits questions all the time. Oh, well, Crash, I'm sorry that I misunderstood your name and thought Eric was threatening me. No. Yeah, be careful out there. Uh, that would be cool to interview a guitar case maker. If anybody has any suggestions. Yeah. I, most of them are made overseas. There's some good ones made in, in the States. Um, man, what's that Southern California case maker that uh, made case for... They make the the high-end Fender cases. What, are the, what is that company called? Oh, I know you're screaming at your, at your radio. I am right now. Oh, you're screaming at your podcast device. Uh, what are they called? Well, I can't remember what they're called. I'll, I'll, I'll remember it later. Anyway, it would be cool to, to interview a case maker. I'm sure there's some, some, uh, high end, like arch top guitar case makers in yeah. the States and things like that. Yeah, that, that's a good idea. Thanks for the suggestion. When switching from round wound to flat wound strings, what, if any setup changes should be addressed? Well, certainly they're going to intonate differently, so you're going to want to reset the intonation. But my guess is that you're also going to have uh, tension differences, which means basically a full setup. You're going to have to adjust the neck, adjust the action, adjust the intonation. And you may even have to uh, uh, adjust some nut slots if you're going to be using a uh, 
a wound third string instead of a plain third string, it might not fit in the slot. Yeah. So a lot of uh, a lot of setup issues to be uh, to be wary of if you're going to switch from round to flat wound. <clears throat> I love flat wound strings, but I almost never use the supplied third string. I usually use a plain third string that I just buy a single plane and and use that. Huh. Yeah, I don't like wound third strings. How come? They're hard to bend. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Crash. Right on. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for participating. Again, you should uh, send in a guitar horror story or just a question or comment. I need your questions. I need your comments for the show. Go to ericdaw.com, E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Submit your question or comment there. The other way to do it, of course, is to call 757-774-8482 and uh, submit your question there via text or voicemail, and we'll use it as part of the show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 